Last week, we were, um, I was taking you back to my, my days at Sarah Retreat about 25 years ago or even more. I mean, it could be 28 uh, when my life was spinning out of control. And uh, I uh, went up and visited Sarah Retreat, and I ended up practically living up there. It's, uh, if you're not familiar with it, it's a Franciscan retreat center uh, in Malibu Canyon. And I think uh, Judy's going there weekend, next weekend. For an Ellen on retreat, you know, say, it, it's it's just a beautiful spot, wonderful spot. I just book a room and just hang about and go talk to the priest. And I told you that there was one point where um, one of the uh, the actual retreat master uh, had made a, what I thought was an outrageous comment in one of the uh, sessions, and so I went in with my Bible to debate him, and he didn't want to hear it. He wasn't even going to go there with me. He'd probably been there so many times in the past, so he just put up his hand, stopped me, and said. All I can tell you is what I'm convinced of. You go become convinced of what you're convinced of. You know, this started a true personal revolution in me because I had never been uh, given permission to go become convinced of what I'm convinced of. I was told what I needed to be convinced of. Uh, I was I was always taught the lessons of the church in a very specific way. And it was the kind of... I suppose, concept or philosophy that nothing was true unless it could be proven with Scripture. Okay? But by proven with Scripture, what they meant was is that that was what was taught by the church. It was a majority opinion, and the church was teaching it as part of their doctrine. That was safe. Everything else I was taught to suspect, especially if I was trying to have my own experience with God and hear a voice that was ratifying what I was reading in Scripture, connecting with all of that. That was verboten. But here are the, these priests, and it wasn't just Emery Tang, it was also Father Fallon, who were coming at their coming at their spiritual lives from such a different place. And it was so alien to me, but at the same time, it was energizing, it was exciting, and I knew that I had to follow them there and find out what was going on, if this was something that I could really do. And, and so the question always for me was, how do I know God? That should be all of our questions. How do we know God? Is it just through Scripture? Is it just through religion? Or is there personal experience? Is there this contemplative way that will form a balance. And that's what we've been talking about for the last few weeks. How do we find this balance between religion and scripture, doctrine, ritual practice, and personal experience, the contemplative way, the way of the mystics? How do we balance that? Is there a balance? Is it valid? And of course, we're saying resoundingly, yes, it is. We always want to be based in scripture. Always want to be based in scripture. Scripture is what grounds us. All right? But contemplative practice is what allows us to take flight. And we need the two. We need, I suppose, a delineation of the playpen. But we want to be able to play within it. And that's what we're trying to do as we balance these two things. We want to be grounded in Scripture, but we want to be fully aware of this personal experience that we can have with our Father. And so, I know that... uh, Part of the problem is is that Scripture and its interpretation is so difficult because there's so many different ones. And it appears that Scripture is contradicting itself 
at times. And we're going to have to deal with that. So if we want to be grounded in Scripture, we're going to have to deal with some of the apparent contradictions that we see here. In fact, the Scripture clearly tells us that we can't know God in the sense that we can't understand God. And yet at the same time, it tells us we have to know God. So which is it going to be? You know, It looks like a contradiction. It looks like we're in a no-win situation. How can we resolve this? Where can we go? In fact, let's take a look at some of these passages so we can get an idea of what, what it is we're up against here. If you take a look at Job 26 at verse 14, and this is uh, on your handouts, but it's also probably up on the screen by now. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him? But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Wow. Beautiful Jewish poetry. And look at Isaiah 55, verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And if that's not enough for you and you've got some time to read, take a look at all of those scriptural citations because they're all saying the same thing. Romans 11, Job 42, Psalm 136, 145, 147, Isaiah 57, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 Timothy 6. Read through them and you find over and over and over again talking about the ineffability of God. Ineffability. You can't put it into words. God can't be put into words. God can't be contained in our minds. God can't be figured out. You know, I think it was Aquinas who said that a comprehended God is no God at all. Brennan Manning said, I wouldn't want a God that I could comprehend. You know, there's something going on here, and the Scripture is trying to point it out. There is a relationship with God that is unknowable from our perch here on earth. But then take a look at John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life. This is Jesus speaking. This is Jesus praying at the Last Supper before he goes to Gethsemane. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Okay, so which is it? We can know God, but it's eternal life to know God. Which is it? What are, what's going on here? Now, personally, I have become convinced that Scripture does not contradict itself. But only if, and only when, we read the Scripture through the eyes of the authors who wrote it. This is critically important. When we read translations, when we read it in our English text, it looks contradictory. Because of choices the translators have made, because of the difference between a Western language like English and an Eastern language like Aramaic. And so things change. But if we can read through the author's eyes, something changes in the way that the Scripture lays out for us. Because the ancient authors, all ancient authors, weren't playing by our rules. They had different ways of trying to convey truth, especially in sacred texts. So the question should now be, how are we going to look through their eyes? Well, the first way we're going to do it is through intellectual study. All right, we're going to study the language. We're going to study the syntax. We're going to study the grammar. We're going to study the, the, the historical and cultural context. All of the, everything. We're going to cross-reference as many different texts as we can to try to understand what these words mean and what's going on. That's the first way that we're going to do this. All right? But it only goes so far. 
That's only going to take us so far in in this journey that we have. Because we're still going to have to make judgment calls. The translator had to do it before you got your beautifully packaged NIV Bible. But you're going to have to do it yourself as you read that beautifully packaged NIV Bible. There's no way that we we can abdicate this responsibility to make our own judgments, our own interpretation about Scripture and what it means. Why is this so important? I want to read to you just a little bit from a book by a professor who has tried to get back the Hebrew understanding of, of the, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I've read this here before, but it hasn't been for a while, and it makes the point so beautifully. In Genesis, in Genesis 6, it's the story of the flood, of Noah's flood, and the building of the ark. And there is one passage there where the Lord is telling Noah to build the ark. Noah, right? Here's the way that passage leads. Uh, this is, <laughs> here's the way that passage reads. Um, if you translate it exactly word for word out of the Hebrew. Quote, A light you do to an ark, and to a cubit you complete it. From to over it and a door of the ark in its side, you put unders 20 and 30 you do. Clear? You know exactly what to do, right? A light you do to an ark and to a cubit you complete it. From to over it and a door of the ark in its side, you put unders 20 and 30 you do. That's exactly what the Hebrew says. Think about the choices the translator has to make. Think about what the translator needs to know about all these words, about cubits, about the way that measurements were made in the ancient world, about everything in order to try to bring to us a paragraph, a passage in English that sounds like this. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. You got that out of that? How did you do that? Right? See, we don't even have a clue the kinds of choices the translators need to make. We just think, oh my gosh, it says this here and that's what it said there. There are worlds apart. All right? There's another one. In Genesis 1, let the land produce living creatures. And then in Genesis 2, and the man became a living being. Now, if the land is producing living creatures, but man is a living being, we're assuming that there's a difference between man and the animals in some you know, qualitative way. But actually, living creatures and living beings are both translations of the same Hebrew phrase. Nefesh hayah. It's a living being. Now, the translator made the value judgment that there's a difference between animals and people, and so translated them differently, but it's the same Hebrew word. Now, does that really make a a, a big difference in terms of our understanding of God? Does it make a big difference? Well, probably not, you know. But the point I'm making here in terms of either if you're going to go build an ark or if you're just trying to figure out if your dog is different than you, is that these are choices that a translator had to make. Had to make, And they make them based on what they know about all those parameters that we were talking about. Now, these could be perfectly good choices, okay? Keeping the author's intent. But there are other passages that maybe are really coloring the author's intent, and that's what we need to take a look at. That's where we need to go with this. And I need to know where I'm going because it's just one of those mornings. See, Jesus was amazing in this. What Jesus was trying to teach us was that we're really, really never going to know Scripture 
until we know God. This is what he was trying to get across to us. He was doing that over and over again. He was doing it with all his conflicts with the, with the Pharisees. He was trying to show people the intent of the law, the intent of Scripture, is something that can easily elude us as we're just reading it and trying to interpret it and be very, very literal with it, until we start to know something, have experienced something about God's nature, about how he relates to us, then we can go back looking through those eyes and know something about Scripture that we didn't know before. Because experiencing the Father gives us access to the Father's eyes through which to read and to begin to understand Looked at another way. Scripture shows us the door, but we still have to walk through it. We have to walk through it. And then once we do, we can look back and we can see the door more clearly. Scripture guides us to an experience, and then through the experience, we can see the Scripture more clearly. It's hand in glove. It's working together. This is so important for us to understand this kind of push and pull that happens between Scripture, intellectual understanding, and experience, and nonverbal, non-rational knowing, because there's a difference between the two. So how does this work? Let's take a look at Exodus 20. And let's see if we can start to show how this can play out. Exodus 20, starting right at verse 1, God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, Out of the house of slavery, you you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven or above, what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me, And keep my commandments. Wow. What do we do with that last line? He's a jealous God. He's going to visit iniquity on the people who hate him to the third and the fourth generations. Is that fair? Is that moral? Is that okay with you? Well, it's God, right? How do we understand what's going on here? Okay? About this jealousness and this iniquity. This is a tough, tough saying. Is there any other way that we can possibly understand it? It seems pretty ambiguous, unambiguous when you read it right here, right? But this is the same idea that has been stated many times in the Old Testament. Take a look at Deuteronomy 4, starting at verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. This is referring to when the people were camped around, around Sinai and Moses went up to the top of the mountain to commune with God. You heard the sound of the words, but you saw no form, only a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. The Lord commanded me, Moses, at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might perform them in the land where you are going over to possess it. So watch yourselves carefully. Since you did not see, since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb or Sinai from the midst of the fire, so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. 
And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Okay, so here is a restatement of the second commandment, which is not to have any idol, any graven image. So I guess, first of all, you know, graven image and idol, they are both translations, again, of the same Hebrew word, pesel, which is a carved image. It could be carved out of stone or wood or metal, but it's carved as opposed to a molten image, which is poured into a cast. Both of them are forbidden. Both of them are prohibitive. But right now he's talking about graven images. All right. These were common in the ancient world. They were statues of men or women or animals. They were relief carvings on walls or in poles. There was something kind of a Asherah poles, which were kind of like totem poles. Um, no one really knows exactly what they looked like, but apparently they were more abstract. But again, they were tributes to the god Asherah. And there's a progression in cultures as they are moving through this religious understanding. And I wanted to read a paragraph from an article that kind of lays this out, and it's kind of interesting. The progression of idolatry in a religion generally starts with the acknowledgement of a power that controls natural forces, like lightning or thunder, rain, sun, moon, stars, fertility of crops, childbirth, war, peace, love, death, all of the critical aspects of life, the ones that we can't control, the ones that scare us, right? Okay, so there is an acknowledgement that a power governs these forces, The presence of the forest is then thought to indwell an object like a stone or an animal or a place like a mountain. These are the totems that we see. The next step is altering a naturally occurring object like a standing stone, a deliberately planted tree, or a carved Asherah pole, and asking the forest to indwell it. And then, as the culture develops the personality of the forest, right, now understood as a god, they can make then corresponding physical images, a statue that looks like a man or a woman or a relief carving that looks like an animal. Graven images can be either of the last two steps. It's all about controlling the uncontrollable forces of nature in order to fend off fear of what we don't understand, to survive by appeasing those forces, getting them on our side. Making the graven image is the first step in gaining some control. It's all about control, right? God taking the Hebrews in the exact opposite direction from all of this, coming out of Egypt, which was a, a, a culture that's right on point here in terms of all of the types of, of totems and images and, and statues and reliefs, everything there, God is taking them in the exact opposite direction, telling them they have none of these no form. To this day, Jews have a sense of the world. They view the world as function over form. Jews aren't concerned with what something looks like. They're concerned with what something does, how it functions. And they're comfortable with not knowing the form of something and just understanding the function of it. And this extends to their God. After 4,000 years, 3,500 years of not even speaking the name of God, of having no representation of God. They're comfortable with this. But are we? This is the question we have to ask ourselves. We don't want to leave these stories just in the past. If they don't connect to us right here and right now, then they're not going to be relevant. And Scripture is relevant. See, we believe that we're not making any idols. 
we believe that we're being true to this second commandment. And we criticize other denominations like Catholics for having their statues or Eastern Orthodox for having their, their, um, their pictures and their, their, their um, icons and so on and so forth. And we say, okay, that's, that's creating a graven image. And we think we're not doing that. But one thing that I always do when I'm working with a person for the first time is try to find out what their image of God is. Because I think that a lot of times we're just being sneakier with our idols. We don't realize that idols are just not physical representations. They can also be mental constructs, mental concepts, theological understandings of God as well that create the same effect, create a static image in our minds. And that image, that understanding of God greatly determines how we choose. It determines the attitude that we have toward life and circumstances and the way that we interpret Scripture, of course. All of these are colored by that. There's kind of two basic ways that you can look at Jesus in the West here. One is as the the old man with the white beard in the sky, you know. He can be the judge, he can be the executioner, he can be the king, but he's way up there, way up top of the pyramid, and everybody is arrayed out underneath him. And the other way is as an unknowable force. And we've got sort of both of these going on. And depending on how a person, when I'm working with them, saying counseling or whatever, how they feel about God, it often lines up with a lot of the problems they're having or the attitudes that they have or the difficulties that they find in relationships, in career, in prayer, and all the other things that they might be coming to talk about. Because what we believe about God really does set the tone for everything else that's going on. And this is so important for us to understand. And think about this. As far as we know, Jesus didn't write anything down. If he did, it didn't survive. If he did, no one speaks about it. The first things that were written about Jesus that we know of were Paul's letters, maybe, what, I don't know, 15, 20 years after the crucifixion, somewhere in the mid-40s. Scholars usually place the earliest letters of Paul. The Gospels weren't written until maybe 10 years after that. The first ones, Mark and Matthew, Luke, maybe around 70, and John, not till the turn of the first century. Did Jesus write anything? We don't know. It's almost as if Jesus knew that if he wrote any of his words down, if there was an original manuscript in Jesus' hand, that that would become the graven image Those words would have been set. Could you imagine? Look what we did to the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. We got a mother bulletproof glass in this kind of hermetically sealed room, and we don't even show them all the time, and we're all this crazy. Could you imagine if we had something in Jesus' hand, the way that we would revere that document? Jesus spoke to the people in real time. Jesus spoke one-on-one to each individual. His words were living and active like the scripture itself. It was life-changing. It was always in motion. It was never static. He didn't write anything down. Paul did. The evangelist did. And so the written word itself can become static in our hands if we use it incorrectly, if we grab onto it. But if we let it play through us as well, then it's doing its job. 
But it's always fascinating to me that Jesus didn't write anything that we know of. And so, if we understand this, we see that our culture has pulled us so far into intellectual understanding, then what we try to do maybe is to pull the pendulum back. And sometimes the pendulum gets pulled back too far. We realize that we've created all these edges. We've created all of these these static images around our God that, that are inappropriate and they're limiting to us as people of faith. But if we pull it back too far the other side, something else starts to happen. I wanted to read just a little bit from... Um, a Jewish rabbi, Rabbi Shapiro, he's a, he's a Hasidic Jew. And he writes that God reveals the essence of divinity to Moses. And this is from the burning bush. Haye, asher, haye. Most often translated as, I am what I am. But a more accurate Hebrew translation would be, I will be whatever I will be. In either case, the Hasidic understanding of the text is the same. God is all that is. God is all. All that is happening at every moment. God is I am. Not a being or even a supreme being, but being itself. Each of us is a keeper of the I am, just as a wave is a keeper of the ocean in its particular place and time. So are you all a keeper of God in your particular place and time? And to realize this about yourself is to realize it about all beings. Well, that's about as beautiful an expression of the ineffability of God as you'll find, but kind of earth to rabbi, you know, how do we deal with that kind of ineffability? How do we deal with that kind of non-expression on a day-to-day basis? How does that help guide us? How does that connect us? The problem is stated really well by another theologian when he says, God's personal and sufficient revelation of himself should foster solid conviction among believers. We need not live in ambiguity and uncertainty about who God is. The increasing influence of Eastern religions on the West, certain postmodern views of truth, and religious pluralism all emphasize God's incomprehensibility so much that he is eventually made to seem unknowable. It then becomes impossible to say anything definitively true or false about him. See, that's what happens when we pull the pendulum too far over to the other side. We want to be balanced in the middle. We want to know God even when we can't understand God. And how do we do that? I had a a young man come to me, and uh, we, we were talking, and he was saying that earlier in life, he knew exactly who God was. He had the image of God, and it was the old man with the beard. But he had the image of God, and he understood who God was. But as he moved through life and got older, that image became more and more limiting to him. It became more and more unsatisfying to him. And he broke through into this new understanding of of a contemplative view, of an unknowable view. But now he doesn't know what he believes anymore. He's kind of finding himself crossing over into a kind of agnosticism. And so we had to talk about that. How do you come back from that? If your pendulum has been pulled too far to one side or another, how do we bring it back? And especially if it's gotten to the place where it's like, can I know anything about this God at all? You know, what is he? Is he really a person? Is he just a force? I mean, what's going on? How do we pull back? How do we get back into a balanced view? Because in that intellectual vacuum, if we're only relying on what we can know in our minds and understand, then it's going to be this bipolar kind of pull back and forth between certainty and despair 
of incomprehensibility and cynicism even, how do we get back into the middle? It's by stepping back into direct experience with God. And then everything starts to change. Everything starts to balance. How do we do this? Guess what? Scripture tells us exactly how. Isn't that perfect? Take a look at 1 John 4. Let's let John give us a clue here. He says at verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Do you get that? Let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Skipping to verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. What's John telling us? He's telling us by loving each other, we are loving God. He's actually saying we don't really love God directly. We love God by loving each other. And it's through this loving of each other that we start to know God. It's the experience of loving each other as God loves us. That starts to impress upon us in ways beneath words who this God really is. How he functions as opposed to what he looks like. And that's where we really live. At the level of functioning rather than just understanding the form. Jeremiah has a way to, to understand it at verse at chapter 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight declares the Lord. So we are supposed to boast in understanding and knowing God as a function of practicing steadfast love, justice, and righteousness here and now, in our lives, in our moments, in our relationships. This is exactly what he's trying to tell us. This is the only way to figuratively step into God's shoes And look at life through his eyes. Interpret life through his eyes. Look at our relationships and look at scripture through those eyes. When we are practicing what God practices, when we are taking deep pleasure and delight in what God takes deep pleasure and delight in, which is a definition of his will in Hebrew. It's what he delights in, what he takes pleasure in, his deepest purpose. All of this, this is the way that we're we're going about it. And even here, we're supposed to understand and know. Understand in Hebrew is a word sakal. And sakal means a lot of things. All Hebrew words mean a lot of things. And the only way you can know what it means is by context. But look what sakal can mean. It can mean to act or behave wisely. It can mean to have insight or it can mean to comprehend and to understand. And if we know that the word for know, yada, in Hebrew, literally means to have intimate experience with something or someone over a long period of time, it's, it's a knowing of experience rather than an intellectual knowing. 
What do you think is the correct way to translate sakal? To act wisely, to behave wisely, to have insight that comes from the experience day in and day out of our God is what we're supposed to boast in. Because we have learned also to take delight in steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in all of our moments. It all starts to come together. And of course, this is going to bring us back to our jealous God. Because we don't want to leave that hanging either, right? God is a jealous God, and he visits iniquity on those who hate him to the third and fourth generation, but showers loving kindness on those who keep his statutes. Is there another way to understand that? And there is. If we look back at the Hebrew again, there are choices that have been made by the translators. The word for jealous is the word kana in Hebrew. It is a word that's derived from a two-letter parent root that is just kuf nun, two letters, right? And it's the word ken. Ken literally means a gathering of seeds. If you took those root letters together, it's a gathering of seeds. But what it meant to the Hebrews was a nest. A nest was a gathering place for the, for the eggs, for the nest of the bird. Okay? So we start with the root. Now, there is a derivative of that called the child root that is kana. That's not the same one for jealous. It's a different word. And it is the addition of a letter. So you've got ken, you've got, you've got kuf, you've got nun, and then you've got het, which is a third letter. That means a wall. All right? And so it literally means... The, the wall of the nest, or by extension, it means the builder of the nest. This kana is a word that's used when we talk about our Lord God as creator of the heaven and earth. It literally means the builder of the heaven and earth. Rather than creator in an abstract way, the way the Jews looked at God creating the heavens and the earth was the way the bird gathers all the materials and brings it together in this place that's a safe place for her eggs, a safe place for the chicks to live and grow and learn everything that they need to do because the Hebrews understood this world, this universe, as a place that God had carefully built, crafted, gathered, as a safe place for us to be able to live and grow and learn everything that we need to learn, to learn how to fly. That's the way that they looked at this world from that point of view. And so the word kana, which is jealous or translated as jealous here, is the addition of the word of the letter aleph after the kuf and the nun. And it literally means the strength of the nest, which then could be translated as the protector of the nest, the guardian of the nest. That's what here has been translated as jealous. We've got the nest. We've got God as the builder of the nest. Now we've got God as the protector of the nest. To translate it as jealous for us here in the West at this time and place in our history, we understand jealousy as what? The anger or a form of anger directed at the unfaithful person in a person's life, right? And we imagine that God is directing his anger at us as the unfaithful spouse in some sort of dysfunctional relationship that we have created. When really the sense of the word is God is projecting his protective instincts toward anything that would disturb the nest, anything that would attack or infest the nest, including those idols that he is trying to keep at bay because he knows that they would come in 
and affect our ability to do what we're supposed to do in the nest, to grow and to learn to take flight. whole different way of understanding it. And then if God is the protector of the nest, what happens when we go ahead and we play with idols anyway? When we allow these graven images to take hold, when we cling to them, instead of clinging to God's Spirit, which is always in motion and blowing through us, We become dysfunctional, and we teach that dysfunction to our children, and they teach that dysfunction to their children and to their children, to the third and fourth generation. I know the way the Scripture reads, but we have to understand that idiomatically, this is the way the Jews expressed themselves, the ancient Hebrews expressed themselves, not as a definitive expression of God's nature, but of the way things function, cause and effect in their lives. And yet for those who break that mold, let go of the graven images and move into relationship with God, then the loving kindness that is always there, the mercy that is always there and the love that is always there becomes manifest and real in their lives. Not that God is withholding or giving. God is who God is. That cannot change. Do you see the difference in the way? Because of an attitude culturally, religiously in the West, Decisions were made about translations. We have to be able to look through the Father's eyes and see a different way. Legitimately, not just pulling stuff out of the air, but legitimately, hermeneutically, finding if there is another way to understand these same scriptures in a way that completely resonates and is consistent with God's nature as we understand it through Jesus, through Jesus' model and through Jesus' words. He is guarding us from all that could take us off track. Can I prove this to you? No. Of course not. I can't prove it to you. And if I did, there'd be somebody over here that would disprove it and prove something else. That's the nature of Scripture. Scripture is open enough to be living and active. It's open enough to be evocative and to draw us into God's presence. It isn't designed ever to give us certainty. That's why so many people can interpret it so many different ways and prove whatever they want to prove. But this is a legitimate interpretation of these passages. It's up to you to have your commune with God, to have your experience with God, to begin to know who God is as you practice a function that is consistent with God's function. And then look again at these scriptures And see if you don't see what I'm talking about here. My shorthand for this was that I had to put a stake in the ground at the point of the Father's love and interpret everything based on that. Because to let go of the Father's love was to move back into fear and back into trying to be good enough to please an angry God rather than have the stake at the point of the law and have God's love blowing about in the breeze. That's a choice that I made. But I believe it came from understanding these scriptures enough to walk through a door and find that experience of God as consummate lover. And then go back and look at these scriptures again, but do the study to see, is there a legitimate way that all this does not contradict? And yes, it absolutely does not contradict. If we're willing to go through this process, if we're willing to let go of our graven images, the ones that we cling to and hold on to, so that God can be what God will be in our lives, in our moments, 
and we'll find out just how much we're loved every single time. Let's pray. Father, your love is absolutely too good to be true. Absolutely amazing. Thank you again for your love. Thank you again for the witness of your scripture. Thank you again for all the men and women in our lives and generations before that have shown us how we can do this. Thank you for the unbelievable work of scholars and theologians who have poured over every single word and tried to understand as best they could and leave us this legacy that we can use to find you back. Help us to find the balance, Lord. Help us to become convinced of what we're convinced of that changes our lives to look like you. That's what we want more than anything. So this morning, Lord, help us take that next small step, whatever it is, towards you, toward the permission and the freedom to find you, to become convinced. Thank you for the permission and the freedom you give us to do just that. We love you, Lord, because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.